Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. Dr. Prism Schneider is an orthopedic trauma surgeon and assistant professor at the University of Calgary. She is well known for her research on many topics, particularly on the use of thrombolestography in postoperative and hospitalized patients. In this episode, however, we delve into Dr. Schneider's research on intimate partner violence and how surgeons might do a better job of recognizing it. So, Dr. Schneider, thank you very, very much for uh, spending some time with us on Cold Steel today. I really appreciate it. We know how busy you are, and uh, and it's absolutely fantastic to have you on. For those of uh, um, our listeners that maybe don't know you uh, super well uh, yet, um, can you tell us where you grew up, um, what uh, prompted you to go into medicine, um, and sort of why orthopedics? Sure. Well, thank you very much. Uh First off, for the invitation, I'm very excited to join you guys today. Um, I'm originally a rural Saskatchewan kid, so I grew up in a very small town, farming Saskatchewan, and I went off to the big city of Montreal for my undergraduate degree, so I think that's what sort of eventually led me to the idea of medicine. It was never on my radar. Um, I was very interested in biomechanics and kinesiology, and I actually moved back to Calgary to uh, pursue a PhD in biomechanics and started falling in love with the field of orthopedics. Um, I had the opportunity to work with patients both pre- and post-operatively, and I really saw the opportunity for potentially merging both medical and sort of graduate training together and hopefully actually someday studying my own patients pre- and post-operatively. Um, so I guess that really led to the uh, Leaders in Medicine program here at the University of Calgary, where I was able to actually uh, defer my medical school acceptance in order to focus on completion of my PhD. I was very grateful for that opportunity. I uh, went through orthopedic residency here in Calgary and then went off and did two trauma fellowships, one at the University of Texas in Houston and the other one back at McGill, actually. It was nice to go back to my alma mater uh, for that opportunity as well. Well, did, despite your love for, for Montreal and your and your uh, your continued visits there, I'm I'm hoping you're still a Riders fan. <laughs> through and through, I bleed green, oh, no doubt. <laughs> I love it, I love it. How, how did your fellowships, just out of curiosity, in Houston uh, compare or differ from, from Montreal? Both in terms of like um, you know structure and content maybe, but even more so healthcare systems and orthopedics and and potentially patients. Um, that's a an excellent broad question. I think I was really drawn to pursue my initial fellowship down in a large um, academic but very clinically busy uh, center, which was why Houston was definitely at the top of my list. And um, it provided exactly that. It was um, really that whole philosophy of drinking from a fire hose. It was incredibly clinically busy um, with wonderful learning opportunities that I think actually differ from my day-to-day mm-hmm. opportunities here in Canada. And so I think having that training opportunity and applying some of the experiences that I had, for example, with with the 
volumes with a very large um, volume of penetrating trauma has really allowed me to develop my practice here in Canada um, in a way that sort of, I think, you know, meets the needs of our population. You know, it's it's interesting, right? We we spend a lot of time talking to um, our graduating residents and, and maybe mid mid level residents uh, regarding selecting fellowships. And there's of course so many things that go into that. But at the end of the day, if it's a technical from specialty you're looking at, volume trumps not everything, but I'd say almost everything. Is that your experience in orthopedics as well? Yeah, I think that's uh, very true. It's a very technical skill that you actually don't really learn throughout, you know, medical school. When you get into residency, orthopedics is a very niche area, believe it or not. And so having the ability to learn a whole bunch of different strategies for perhaps treating very similar problems um, gives you this whole toolkit that I think can be applied in your practice. And and I've been able to extend some of that to some really great, you know, uh, international opportunities where your resources are different. But having that toolkit in your armamentarium, um, I think, is is very helpful in practice. Dr. Schneider, um, one of the things we really wanted to uh, d- dive deep with you about is all your work on interpersonal violence. Uh, that's such an interesting and, frankly, uh, different kind of topic for, uh, I think, most surgeons to kind of think about, whether in orthopedics or not. Can you tell us how you got interested in that topic? Absolutely. It's a, it's a difficult area, and I think I liked the challenge of that. But I definitely reflect back to a patient encounter that really kind of sparked this uh, journey of um, both research and I think personal and uh, professional improvement with this difficult topic. Um, I was very early in my very first year in practice, and I unfortunately um, missed an opportunity, I think, initially to intervene in a, a patient that was experiencing intimate partner violence. And uh, so she was a young lady. She was uh, had an eight-month-old baby at home living with her partner. I met her essentially in the preoperative holding area um, as she had an ankle fracture requiring surgical treatment. I went through my general um, information, informed consent, felt that I built fairly nice rapport quite quickly with this young lady. Um, and then subsequently went on to notice when she went off to uh, sleep for her surgery that she had bruises all over her body, various stages of healing. Um, and this patient posed a bit of a challenge for me because I think I had missed my initial window of opportunity to build a bit more rapport with her. And uh, so it subsequently took a number of uh, clinical visits to, number one, provide a safe environment for her to discuss that with me. And to number two, I think, become that person that she uh, felt comfortable discussing it with. And she has since, uh, this is now several years ago, but she she really thanked me sort of at the end of our um, interactions for not only saving potentially her life, but potentially that of her young babies as well. And so that experience was very profound for me. Um, And then I kind of dug into the literature in this area and really got aligned with people like Mo Bandari and Sheila Sprague at McMaster University. And I went on to really learn some of the staggering facts, I think, one of which being that um, escalating violence is the number one predictor of intimate partner homicide. 
And so I started thinking about these missed opportunities and how we could really find opportunities to close some of these care gaps. So I think that's where the motivation for this challenging area of um, clinical work as well as research has come from. What what did you ultimately end up finding in the, the paper that you published? Um, so great question. I might even reflect back on a publication that um, was uh, work going on when I was a senior resident. Um, the PRAISE study was really a pivotal study for, I would say, orthopedics, but hopefully for anybody caring for patients with um, injuries or fractures. Um, this was a study published in The Lancet in 2013. And again, Mo Bendari and, and Sheila Sprague out of, out of McMaster University were the leads on that. And I was a senior resident. We were recruiting patients for this study. And I have to say, I think that's where this all stemmed from. And unfortunately, we did find in a cohort of over 3,000 female patients presenting to fracture clinics across 12 different sites all over the world that one in six women who were presenting to our CAS clinic had actually experienced some form of intimate partner violence in the prior year. And we also found, unfortunately, that one in 50 women that were coming to the fracture clinic with an injury were there directly because of an injury due to intimate partner uh, violence. And when you think about one in 50, that may not seem that high, but if you think about how many fractures are happening in any given city at any given time, that that is a really staggering um, elevated number. So I think some of that work actually led to our ongoing work with development of educational resources and the Educate study, again, in collaboration with McMaster University, where we really wanted to identify some of the barriers that healthcare professionals face. We wanted to provide platforms for education and knowledge development, and then we wanted to study that intervention. That's such a great background story. Like it, it, it's it's such a good example for all of our listeners from residency all the way forward about you know just being being attentive and being aware in your environment to some of these issues that are that are right there that are quote unquote low hanging fruit that are potentially really big issues if we pay attention to them and chase them and study them and try and intervene. Um, you guys should be so proud of that. It's interesting um, in looking through a number of your papers on intimate partner violence, uh, not just the CMAJ open one, but the orthopedic-based ones as well. It, it doesn't, I, I don't want to sound in any way, of course, um, uh, clueless about it, but it doesn't overly surprise me for some reason that surgeons aren't the best folks, even orthopedic surgeons, at at identifying a super high-risk group. You know, you've defined the frequency of it, and as you said, so, so is Mo. It, it's, a, it's an epidemic. It's, a, it's obviously a huge societal problem. Um, when I think to, to us, you know, as, tr- as the general surgical trauma side, both in the U.S. and these uber, uber, uber interpersonally violent places, um, it, I think it tends to percolate up and, and bubble up a little bit more obviously, maybe than for the orthopedic surgeon dealing with the fracture. Do you think that's a, a fair statement or, or an unfair statement? And I mean it as sort of a, a little bit sympathetic to the orthopedic um, uh, world, you know? 
I think what's interesting is actually looking at the definition of what intimate partner violence is, and it really is important yeah. to note that it's not limited to physical abuse or physical injury, which is unfortunately when we tend to see these patients, yeah. and that brings that, me back to that escalating violence, and unfortunately, there's a lot of usually pre-existing isolation, um, psychosocial harm that has come to these patients prior to the actual physical injury um, when we meet them. And so, again, I kind of always reflect on the opportunity. And one of the other things that we found with the PRAISE study was that only 14% of patients had previously been asked about intimate partner violence when they had a physical injury. And so I think that's a huge opportunity, even at the medical school level, um, to really begin focusing on training opportunities um, learning how to be comfortable and confident talking about a really difficult subject area, um, it actually makes it much more easy or much easier to integrate into clinical practice. Yeah, well, I, I, to be truthful, you know, here in Calgary, I have to say that your work has really changed the way that I personally round. When I look at these patients on the trauma service every day, it's something that's at the forefront of my mind and I do ask about it. One of the puzzling things uh, that you're saying and, and what you found in your research in that Throughout medical school, we get lots of lectures about uh, what to look for in terms of child abuse, right? Like we we are shown shown X-rays and we're taught the classic signs of, you know, what are, what are classic signs of child abuse. But I think much less so uh, about intimate partner violence. And um, can you talk a little bit about why that might be, and and also how is that how is that different than child abuse? Yeah, it's a great question. You're completely right. I mean, we're taught the pathognomonic presentation of child abuse, and I would say that our pediatric colleagues have done a phenomenal job with really standardizing um, screening and official screening for um, child abuse. And it is interesting to see that care gap that, that has happened when you move into adulthood. Um, I feel very fortunate we've just completed our very first Meducate uh, study, so to speak, where we were approached actually by the medical students. Um, I give a couple of lectures about MSK injuries, and I sort of use that as a platform to start talking about intimate partner violence. Um, and they actually were the ones who really initiated the need for and the longing for a bit more education. And so we did an evening event with the medical students. It was a volunteer uh, activity, and we presented a lot of the information from Educate, but we also allowed them to do a practical scenario. We had social workers, we had um, simulated patients, they got some feedback on how they interacted with these patients, and we're just uh, writing up our results as sort of the feedback that we've received from that uh, endeavor, and it was very, very positive and very favorable. So again, it's that opportunity early in training to discuss something um, that's difficult to talk about. Yeah, that's absolutely so true. Prism, before we leave this topic, I, I want to ask you where you see this going next. In other words, um, not only at the micro, but the macro level, what, what should we be doing next? Where's your research program going next? Um, how, can we, how can we help make this better moving forward? Um, thank you for the question. So maybe I'll start with um, micro. So locally, one of the questions that I'm often asked is, you know, there's always a focus on the female patient. And what about other patients and other types of relationships, for example? And that's an those are excellent questions. Um, I usually will respond with the fact that unfortunately being 
a female is the single greatest predictor of being a victim of or someone who experiences intimate partner violence. However, the opportunities are huge for actually identifying patients that maybe act in violent ways to provide some educational opportunities for them and to really start breaking down that cycle of violence. And so we are working on uh, locally a study for validating a screening tool to help identify but also assist those in violent intimate relationships. And I see that being really <laughs> the future. Hopefully that will be micro to macroscopic uh, intervention for yeah. sure. Oh, that's amazing. And I think on a national level for your second part of your question, I, I think we're now at the point where our governing bodies like the Canadian Orthopedic Association, the American College of Surgeons, they all have position statements that, that really emphasize that it is well within the level of responsibility of providing care for injured patients that it's our due diligence that we need to be having these conversations with patients. Um, and so I like the direction that it's going at a more national and international level with identifying the, the barriers for why we don't have these discussions, how we can support physicians in feeling confident and comfortable having the discussion with their patients and ideally having all the resources available to them to help protect these patients. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, when we think about all these brief interventions and, and sort of patient questioning that becomes so important, whether it's, you know, smoking cessation in a family doctor's office, whether it's what you're talking about, whether it's on our trauma service and, and you're looking at somebody who's a drunk driver as so many of them are, you know, brief alcohol intervention. I think we can all do better and try and capture these patients across a lot of different opportunities in our healthcare system, there's no doubt. Um, President, if we shift gears just here for uh, a, a little bit, um, for the, again, for those of, uh, who don't maybe know you as well as we do, um, you've been really, really productive uh, academically and clinically out of the gate um, when you started to, to work again here in Calgary. Um, you know, whether that's research or whether that's obtaining funding and applying for grants, uh, and then, of course, as mentioned, the, the clinical side of things. Um, how have you done that? Um, and what advice would you have for others starting out, um, you know, in, in their early staffdom, so to speak, to, to try and keep that going? You know, we had a great recent conversation with uh, a Dave Urbach about the challenges and the barriers that seem to increase on almost a monthly basis with, with achieving quality research and funding and so on. So the hurdles are always there, but you've done a remarkable uh, and graceful job of, of stepping around and over them. So how, how have you done that and what could you tell us about that? Uh, thank you for the very kind words. I appreciate it very much. Um, I think one of the things that I did early on and perhaps advice um, I wish I would have done maybe even a bit earlier um, is to really align with those who truly support you and they actually support your personal and professional goals. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, we talk about mentorship very frequently and it's a word that maybe gets thrown around or perhaps even misused quite commonly. And I think you know, a really nice definition that I've heard from about mentorship is a mentor is someone who wants to see you 
exceed their goals for you and to really support your own goals. And so I think aligning with uh, people that are truly willing to support your initiatives and move, you know, your group's uh, agenda forward has has been what's been really helpful. And that can be difficult early on to sort of align yourself and identify who those people may be. Um, but having varied mentors, whether it's clinical research, work-life balance, I think I think that's really where I feel very supported by a great team. Yeah, it's true. I mean, your your trauma uh, orthopedic group here in Calgary is 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 fantastic. You guys have such such a great collaborative group uh, for sure. And I, you know, I think it, it's it's also interesting to reflect upon you know your initial comment about the fellowships you did because I would say that you know for me personally, a lot of my um, Honestly, academic support and, and mentorship doesn't necessarily come from the place I work in now. It doesn't come from Calgary. It comes from those experiences um, all through the world, really. Um, and so we can always carry those mentors with us and tap into them. And I think it's very powerful. I'm sure you're tired of talking about COVID. Um, I have no doubt uh, all the listeners are tired of hearing about COVID. We certainly talked about it intermittently in a lot of different ways on this podcast. But maybe just to finish up, what are the impacts you think of, of, of COVID with regard to intimate partner violence um, in general? What are your comments? And, you know, I'll preface it by saying um, we were lucky enough to write a, a couple of papers based on looking at trauma volumes and mechanisms and variability in those things, both in the U.S. and Canada with regard to a number of economic uh, indicators, whether it's gasoline prices or GDP or, or whatever. And clearly you see you know, interpersonal violence spike um, everywhere and in some places incredibly so when the economy um, uh, struggles. Um, how does that relate to your to your work about partner violence? Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. Um, it was very interesting at the very end of March, the United Nations actually issued a statement of warning, and it was pretty profound uh, yeah. that the worldwide, you know, impact of intimate partner violence was, it was inevitably going to increase due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we're seeing. So China reported very early on a huge rise in the incidence and the severity of intimate partner violence uh, in their uh, experience. And then locally, you know, Vancouver very early on um, in April uh, reported 300% increase in their calls um, once the isolation restrictions were put on. And I think if you really think about the scenario, the measures that are of utmost importance to minimize the spread of COVID-19, unfortunately, reinforce an environment that actually facilitates isolation and can really provoke, you know, violent behavior. Um, I've been fortunate to have a wonderful group of uh, local uh, social workers and um, uh, employees sort of in the domestic violence sector of our city and here in Calgary as well. We're seeing, um, you know, 30 to 50 percent increase uh, calls to our domestic violence and sexual violence crisis lines. Um, the number one complaint at the moment to a general crisis line is actually family conflict or family issues. Um, so I think, unfortunately, this this pandemic is, has huge ripple effects, um, certainly economic, but I think within each person's home as well. And so I think if I could, the opportunity I think is very much there again to, to really 
try to educate ourselves on how we can identify patients that might be at higher risk, um, really try to keep that hypervigilance uh, when we're dealing with patients, particularly with injuries that are presenting. As we're kind of rushing to move patients in and out of the hospital as quickly as possible, we certainly don't want to overlook these patients. Um, the Educate program, there are a number of other programs. Uh, Real Talk is another good example where you can actually do online training to just build a little bit of confidence and comfort in discussing this difficult issue with patients. Oh, it's so well said. Prism, let's just end uh, for a slow guy like me um, with your advice on um, whether it's for a general surgeon or a, or a, um, a surgical resident or an orthopedic surgeon. It doesn't matter. What, what should you do mechanically if you suspect and potentially identify intimate partner violence? So I'm rounding. I've, I think this is a, I've had the discussion. I think this is a clear case of it. What do I do next? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the number one fear and the number one barrier that we hear from people is what to do if you get a disclosure. And so I think that learning your local environment um, is the first step. So who's your social worker? Who's a point person that can help you? Because the goal of asking patients is not necessarily to have all of the right answers of how to provide immediate assistance, but it's to know where to go locally so that you can build a support team around that patient. And so I would sort of suggest that the best way forward for us kind of universally is to be asking all patients regardless of, you know, any predisposition that you may may have any presuspicions or prejudgments because by normalizing the language, just like we ask about other um, medical issues, um, will really help to bring this issue to the forefront, make us all much more comfortable in discussing with our patients and then learning about local resources to provide the support that those patients may need. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.